Hello, creeps. Welcome to the Horror Vanguard. I'll be your ghost. I mean host for today's exciting tale of terror. Die, you zombie bastards. Or slather to the hilts and dick scores. <sighs> I really do think you should do the lead in for this one. <laughs> like who else? I can... Oh man, I, yeah. I, I, did, I, I did. also hope. I also hope this episode is going to have a dick scores uh, pun in its title. That's all I want, Ash. I will. I will do my best to put as many dicks into this episode as we possibly can. <laughs> Rubber dicks slathered to the hilt in peanut butter, if at that's all possible. All I want. Uh, or, or massive. Massive dicks being bashed by hammers, <laughs> <laughs> or, or, or perhaps, perhaps uh, even larger, massive dicks being coated in mustard and ketchup. Perhaps. Yep. <laughs> or, or uh, as we'll get into later, the biggest stick of them all, cinema. <laughs> yes. Uh, Any, I, anyway, I, uh, that's that's all going into the episode. Hello, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, today, today we're talking about a uh, very, a very special movie, a movie near and dear to my heart. Uh, one of one of the uh, Citizen Kanes of cinematic experience. We are talking about 2005's "Die, You Zombie Bastards." How are you, John? <laughs> I, I, f- I feel like I have like seen beyond the veil, I, like. I, I, I'm on a higher plane now after after seeing this film. I I've ascended. My brain has been uh melted and reconfigured into a new shape. My soul has been rendered by this purifying cinematic fire. Uh I am ah, oh, I am extremely good. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is this is the expected effect of the world's first ever serial killer superhero zombie rock and roll road movie romance. It's it's amazing. It's I'm I'm so excited. I'm so excited to talk about this. I've already told you this. I've already told you this before we started recording. But I think everyone is everyone has these moments where you know you you get to know somebody uh, and eventually they will tell you that you know you should really watch this movie or you should should really read this or you should really listen to this album and after doing so you kind of understand that person that friend that partner whatever just a little bit better um and as i said to ash before we started recording this is this is that film for my dear friend and comrade ash i i now feel like i have such a deeper understanding (laughs) of of who you are and and your politic your politics and your uh, aesthetics, all of this has been kind of unfolded, open to me in a brand new way. I, I think that makes a lot of sense. That's that's very poetic of you. That's that's very deep. That should have been the summary for this episode. In fact, <laughs> um, you're probably you're probably right about that. I saw this movie. I think the year I graduated high school. Um, so this movie has been with me for like half of my life now. 
and and it's definitely one of my favorites to go back to. And each time I go back to it, I find something new that I had missed on, on previous viewing, something more ridiculous, something more absurd. Mm. Uh, yeah, so uh, a lot of a lot of my brain has been uh, enhanced, uh, uh, perhaps even made uh, functionally superior by repeated exposure to the text of this film. <laughs> <laughs> I. I am I am so excited for everyone who's listening to this episode because what's going to happen is that I I truly believe this this is going to mean hopefully however many people listen are going to be encouraged if they've never seen it to go and seek out Die You Zombie Bastards um and it is going to transform their their mind in the same way that it has transformed me um so before we kind of go too much further, though, I'm so excited for this bit. <laughs> I've been looking forward to this. I've been looking forward to this bit for a very long time. It is it is that point in the show uh, where we kind of lay out what this film is about. Um, we contextualize the discussion. So, Ash, what is Die You Zombie Bastards? really all about there's a lot that could be said for this text and there there are definitely a lot of things we're going to be talking about but i think some something as grounded and as level and as serious as the film that we are discussing today needs an equally grounded level and serious uh precy mm-hmm. yeah uh, in the black hole of trauma vander kolk and mcfarlane write experiencing trauma is an essential part of being human History is written in blood. Their essay goes on to outline how society has, perhaps, overemphasized a phenomenological diagnosis without adequate attention to the healing of trauma or the interaction of the phenomena that constitute trauma. Dayu Zombie Bastards represents a reinterrogation of the traumatic. Not something so crass and overplayed as an escape to that oft distant binary star pair of healing enclosure. Dayu Zombie Bastards looked to explore this territory without playing into the silencing and erasing that is necessary for a simple ending. As Deleuze and Guattari wrote in A Thousand Plateaus, writing has nothing to do with signifying. It has everything to do with surveying, mapping, even realms that are yet to come. Dayu Zombie Bastards surveys and maps the traumatic landscape of the popular American psyche a psychological plane shared by so many. And through this cartography uses splatter, the grotesque, and camp to discover a land yet to come. There is a place in our shared reality where we can interrupt the traumatic cycle of even the strangest wounds. And that place is Hell Island. Or maybe Pittsburgh. Oh, that was everything I wanted. (laughs) Okay. Now, here's here's my kind of here's my kind of initial response. You know, Um, (laughs) please go on. Well, let's talk about this in the context of 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 cinema, right? Um, If you think of if you think of British cinema, if you think of British cinema, the thing that kind of exemplifies British cinema is the historical drama, history. You know, that is, that's the resource that we turn into 
um, narrative art. That's that's the resource that we go to when we're talking about um, British film. It's it's historical, often very contemporary history, often stretching back into into you know thousands of years. However, in the context of um, America, America is historically speaking a far younger um, country. There isn't the same depth of historical um, time in which you can kind of extract certain narratives. However, what America doesn't have in history, it has in uh, well. You know, America, is, as instantiated in a violent act of imperialism, doesn't have in history. It has in um, geographic and topological space. So the American cinema form par excellence, in my opinion, is the road movie. Right? I think that's a... a or, in its kind of earlier version... The Western, anything that deals with the frontier, the explorations of the frontier, the pursuit of a goal that involves going out into the great expanse of the American uh, life world. Um, however, I have never like really been able to kind of pin down what I think the quintessential American road movie film is. There are loads of really good options. There are loads of incredible options. But thinking about it this week, after watching this film for the first time, I, I, I genuinely think that Die You Zombie Bastards is the it's 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 the restaging of of the Odyssey in contemporary America. This is this is the American film, right? I I could not agree with your analysis more. I think that if if there was ever a film that I would say bottles a pure essence of the ersatz of American culture, it is Die You Zombie Bastards. And I think drawing analogy to the history of the Western and the history of road movies is is really appropriate here because America America has a rich and ancient history. It was just buried with genocide. Yeah, um, and it, it was the the dual agony of of that is is that uh there there's an old poem and i'm forgetting the poet but there's a line in there that's kind of always been with me since i've read it um and and that's there's some in a paraphrase here but there's this there's this strange and haunting anxiety there's there's this wounding that fills the heart of of every american and it's it's because we are a people of diaspora we're, we're a nation made of former slaves. We're a nation made of people kicked out of other countries. We're a nation made of people uh, who left other countries as either oppressors or as victims of oppression. We, we kind of collectively have become a nation of disjointed, diasporic wanderers. And yeah. the, the impulse to kind of constantly crawl over the horizon, whatever that horizon is, whether that's personal historic political that dragging gnawing urge to pull yourself to something new no matter what possesses the american artistic landscape and mm -hmm. in die you zombie Va bastards it finds this pure and unbridled manifestation because because what you can have is not just a personal motivation you can have a romantic reason mm -hmm. for for going out into the world 
and that's exactly what this is it's um it's a journey it, it's a love quest this is this is you know the classic narrative of joseph campbell's hero with of a thousand faces yeah yeah this is this is i we were joking about this earlier but like this is just a strictly better version of homer's odyssey Oh no, I wasn't. Jo- I'm deadly serious. <laughs> I, I am, I'm glad I am we can agree un- on that. Then I'm glad we can agree. I'm unironically a hundred percent serious that that this is. Uh, that's exactly what this is. Yeah, yeah. When one hundred percent Homer's Odyssey, uh, way too long, way too boring, not really relevant anymore. Die you zombie bastards, uh, snappy, yep. fast, relevant. It's much better. Features features zombies. Uh, you, there you've are got no zombies. You've got zombies. You you you've literally got a Greco-Roman tragedy. Yep. And in, in in the center of the movie, right? You have you've you got, have the Kraken. You know, you have some some uh, Harryhausen popping up in the middle there. You have uh, the Cheese Demon. Um, Olaf the Cheese Demon. I mean, you can't say no <laughs> to uh, that. Throw that it, isn't uh, in that isn't that isn't in Homer. <laughs> see, yeah, Homer, you know what? Homer did not have the. Uh, uh, apps the psychedelic vision to to imagine a, <laughs> a a a shriveled little Germanic gremlin that flings molten cheese on onto uh, uh, the nipples of unfortunate women. Uh, exactly. I I think this is inarguable. Um. I, f- I feel like maybe we should give some context here. Yeah, I feel like I feel like between all of the dicks and demons and zombies, people might be and serial killers, they might be getting a little lost. Um, so this okay, film, so, yeah, go in its in its in its kind of most basic form. You know, what are we dealing with here? Uh, so this this is a film by Caleb Emerson, who is uh, a Rhode Island filmmaker, and this film kind of comes out of the like '90s, early 2000s Rhode Island kind of like radical art scene, uh, specifically around Providence. Um, in like uh, one of the actors in this film, Pippi Zarnoza. Pippi Zarnoza is well known in the Providence area as kind of like a uh, a feminist radical artist, and so kind of like this movie is kind of emerging from that space. Um, and it's also coming out of uh, a series of shorter films known as Red's Breakfast. Uh, Red's Breakfast is about Red Tool, a, a like camp serial killer who, who's just living. And it's just the story of his life and stuff like that. The third uh, episode of Red's Breakfast is Die You Zombie Bastards. And it's, mm-hmm. it's kind of a precursor text to this film. Uh, the, movie, the movie stars... So Tim Tim Gerstmar plays Red Tool. Red Tool is the serial killer superhero that goes on the rock and roll road, road movie romance. Uh, Jeff Mosher plays uh, Baron Fucklove Mummyhead Von Nefarious. Uh, Pippi Zarnoza is Violet. Uh, oh, Jamie Gillis. This is this was Jamie Gillis's last movie. Uh, for he, he plays a character, uh, a vampire, or at least like he's probably. I think he's a vampire. That's ninety percent mm-hmm. certain he's a vampire. But like. Uh, he, he plays a character named Stavros, uh, and this was his final movie. This capped uh, Jamie Gillis's wild career of like weird movies and porno. <laughs> uh, Stavros is maybe one of my favorite characters in this film. It's, it's so good. <laughs> um, but yeah, so so the, the basic plot is uh, uh, Red Tool lives a quiet uh, life in a uh, ramshackle, falling apart house uh, with his with his wife Violet. 
Um, they're they're out uh, cannibalizing a raw human skull on a picnic one day, and then uh, Red Tool realizes he forgot the champagne, so he has to uh, head back to his home to find it. Uh, while he's gone, uh, Violet is kidnapped by uh, by uh, <laughs> Baron Fucklove, Mummyhead von Nefarious, uh, and then this sets Red off on a quest to to find his beloved, to defeat uh, Nefarious, and to uh, indirectly or directly save the world. It is it yeah, it's an epic road movie. It is a love story. It is a searing exploration of Lacanian theory. Um, all of these things I think are true. Um, Factually uh, correct. And it's, and it's it's a like aesthetically we're talking we're talking like uh, trauma. We're talking the kind of grindhouse splat stick films yeah this has um, i mean like this is an ultra low budget independent production it's got all of the hallmarks of really early trauma like even early trauma had a, a solid budget like like this yeah, is this, this is, looks like it was made for like six hundred dollars yeah like like this is it's phenomenal what they were able to accomplish with the the, the little resources they clearly had for the production of this uh it has uh Hassel Atkins in it. The, <laughs> we haven't even gotten to the fact that this has the haze. <laughs> uh the the legend of psychedelic rockabilly uh, from West Virginia. Um the the man who loved sex, chicken, uh and beer. And don't forget beheadings. Also a big and, fan oh, of those. Huge fan of beheadings. <laughs> Um, it's it is it's it's a film you really can't you can't if you expect that you can take it seriously then you really can't. It's very deliberately uh, tongue in cheek. Some of the kind of classic tropes of trauma style filmmaking are there. There is genuinely pointless nudity. There is uh, allegedly there is, pointless, but we'll get into that. <laughs> there is um amazing practical special effects uh yeah and like C caleb emerson went on to uh um i don't know his i can't remember his specific role in the film but he did work on poultry geist night of the chicken dead so he did go on to work with trauma so well that doesn't surprise me in the slightest no no not not, not at all <laughs> but okay. um yeah so, so let, for, let's let's dig in for such a kind of rich text it's oh my god the richest of texts where do you want to where do we where do we begin well this the, there is it is a hard long road to get to the meat of this discourse and if we are going to stand erect and proud and kind of ejaculate our opinions on on onto our listeners you know and have them be showered in kind of this uh this this golden array of our thoughts i think we should start by talking about dick we, 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 <laughs> the, brace yourself. There is there is a it lot just of gets discourse better. in this in this episode. The, there is there there is a mouthful of discourse we're about to have. <laughs> okay. Yes. So let's let's do it. Let's let's talk about let's talk about dicks. So 
So, so I want to kind of like, I, uh, if it's all right with you, I'm going to give a brief overview of this movie's dicks. Yes, please do. So right right off the bat, we have three dicks. Two are mentioned. One is present. So Red Tool and Violet are uh, uh, having a romantic moment together as a couple. Violet presents him with a present, and the present is a superhero costume. Uh, mm-hmm. And one of the things in the superhero costume is is kind of a uh, a like a speedo made out of human skin that has like a phallus as part of it, which Violet proceeds to wear as a headband. Um, yeah. And then. Uh, Violet asks Red, "What, what like, what, what, what do I love most? Like, what's my favorite thing?" And then, like, without skipping a beat, Red is like, "Dicks, rubber dicks," <laughs> and then rubber and, dicks, <laughs> rubber dicks. And then Violet turns around, and is like, "Oh no, stupid! What's my favorite thing?" And then, and then Red was like, "Hmm, rubber dicks slathered to the hilt in peanut butter." <laughs> and so, so, so right off the bat, like in our first sequence in the movie, we're we're inundated with with a variety of. Uh, a diegetic dick and kind of metaphoric mm-hmm. suggestive dick. The movie goes on to uh, introduce a, a character known as Amphibious Guy. So something, a, yep, cre- a creature of the guy. Black Lagoon. And like Am- Amphibious Guy is, is most known for his uh, legendary and uh, proto-human Amphibococ, which uh, <laughs> let your mind wander. Guillermo del Toro, like, so this movie comes out way before The Shape of Water. And so I'm, I'm thinking Guillermo del Toro is probably a Dayu Zombie Bastards fan and took a lot of influence from this text. I, I think that's inarguable. I think that's inarguable. I mean, when you, when you watch the two movies, it's just like there really should have been writing credits for Caleb Emerson inside of The Shape of Water. The two are similar in so many ways, actually. I, you, you you, you've got kind of, uh, you know, women, young, young women who are oppressed, who are trying to navigate male-dominated industry, uh, you know, experiencing this, this otherness and this exteriority through passionate love with a fish man. I mean, it's the same. It's the same subplot. It, it really is. It's, I'm, I'm baffled that nobody has brought this out before. Okay, so... Um, <laughs> But the whole rest of the movie, it's just like there's a there's a there's a third there's a third how how many you you said there were three so we've gotten two what's the third? Oh no, we're we're uh, up to four we're up to four and we're not even through the like uh, initial uh, inciting incidents of the film. Yeah, no, keep going. Keep going. Uh, uh, so if if uh, if my memory serves me, the next dick we are introduced to is that of Baron Fucklove Mummyhead von Nefarious. Okay. Uh, he has what can only be described as a grotesque and deformed member of approximately three feet in length, uh, which uh, is proceeded to be beat with hammers, covered with uh, hot dog condiments. Uh, A a lot really happens to it. Um, Going forward from there, uh, there, there's a a Harryhausen-style, you know, stop-motion animation Kraken, which has the amphibious guy cock. Yep. Um, there is a giant rubber dick that is the key to uh, the secret uh, zombie lair on Hell Island. Yep. Um, there is Red Tool's unacknowledged sidekick winds up becoming a superhero called Lightning Rod with a dick that can shoot electricity. Uh, yep. Um, uh, Red Tool's dad gives him a giant dick. Yes, yes. <laughs> in the In the final moments... And, and, the, and, the, and the, I'm not even I'm not even counting phallic imagery. These are all just the literal dicks. 
like we're skipping phallic imagery altogether for this for this dick's course. For this dick's course. But that's yes. but that's a good overview. Like like all, all throughout this film, and it's really well paced too. Like right when you're like, huh, it's been a while since we. There's a dick. So the, this this movie has that as as just like it never it never skips a beat. It's right. It's like dick rest rest dick rest rest. It's very it's almost like a waltz of dick. <laughs> <laughs> and. And you have to examine that, right? There's no way yeah, no, that you can put that correct. much dick into a camp horror movie without talking about it. And you had an insight into this that was so penetrating. I was left immobile, shaking, and exhausted. So if you could share that with our audience. Okay, so there are, <laughs> there are a number of ways that we can theoretically respond to the phallus right the prevalence of the phallus um because you know you can you can read this on a very literal level in which this film becomes a kind of misogynistic exercise of male power fantasies um but i think that's a very that's a very reductive way of treating this text right this is why this is why and i don't know why this always happens to me but every time you you pick one of these films, it always sends me towards Lacan. Um, <laughs> like this is the film that I, I told you, this is the film that made me a Lacanian. Like it's happened now. I, 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 I see no other way of dealing with things. So for Lacan, what is like the phallus is never literally just the dick. It, the, the phallus is always representative. It is the signifier par excellence, right? And what it signifies is, whatever we think the object of desire is you know uh, it's the the x the unattainable thing that explains the paternal desire for the maternal so here's what i think here's here was my here was my uh nuclear take on this film uh this is a road movie and red tool is um going around in his superhero outfit uh with its its uh, phallic add-on um but what does the phallus represent and so what happens is that every time he arrives in a new location he meets somebody who very much wants to get close to him and has a story to tell him and so my kind of take was that what the what the phallus represents is the desire for narrative you know, this is a very generic film. And I don't mean that as criticism. It's a film that is kind of like playing with genres. And so narrative structures become incredibly important. So what this, what the phallus represents in this film, in my opinion, is a the desire for narrative, which is another way of saying it's the desire for cinema. So the prevalence, all of this discourse... <laughs> is basically some dick waving at mainstream filmmaking. This is this is like the most brilliant thing I've ever heard. <laughs> 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 of course, of course it would be it would be a movie like Die You Zombie Bastards that would that would pry force that would that would that would spur your soul to to conjure this kind of analysis. Um I mean I I've got to be honest, I think this is maybe my best ever take. Um, and it's it is not on a film that legitimately I was powerful. <laughs> Be 
because this is the thing, right? Red goes on this quest. He he has his own narrative, and every time he runs into a character, they always want to they always want to get close to him, uh, mm-hmm. sexually or not, because you know that's 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 the the purpose of the phallus. But really, what they want is they want a chance to uh, tell him a story, because the phallus here represents narrative. It represents the chance to 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 speak, uh, and really what that is about is about cinema you have a uh, super inga who tells red about the cheese demon uh we have the story of oh uh coconut what's what's the name coconut head oh, face yeah, co- yeah co- coconut head face man <laughs> yeah coconut coconut head face man uh which red hears about so that's what i think really the prevalence of the phallus is explicable solely through the desire for narrative and like as I say in the in the it, it, before our kind of climactic uh, battle, <laughs> uh, what happens is that uh, Red runs encounters his own father uh, in this kind of moment of therapeutic catharsis. He is handed literally handed the phallus. He is given the giant dick right? that his that his father has been. Uh, holding on to his his estranged father right in 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 the moment is so cathartic he's meeting his dad after decades of separation and what is the final parting gift it is it is both the giant phallus and and it is this this phallic uh, a gun that will go on to defeat nefarious by by shooting a fluid into his mouth yeah <laughs> that 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 is the gift from the father to the son that heals the 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 generational gap and the pain and, and the separation and yeah and it brings red back together with his wife mm-hmm. um you know it's, which it's like is poetry the, the kind of, yeah so but it would it would be very easy to read this in sort of like again that misogynistic male power fantasy mm-hmm. um however that misses the fact that what happens to the phallus generally in this film is it's is it's abused there are so many people who get punched in the dick there are there are there are are big penises that get smashed with mallets zombies have their testicles torn off like the the phallus is uh abused i'm not i'm I'm talking about the phallus in general here i'm talking about the kind of the meta dick as it were (laughs) So we can't talk about this in strictly in strictly just kind of the reassertion of a heteronormativity, right? You know, the the handing over of the phallus to 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 to, to regain the lost wife, which allows the the kind of wedded union in heteronormative terms. We can't talk about it like that because this is a film that also systematically goes out of its way to abuse the phallus. Baron, uh, Baron yes. Nefarious has. Has uh, you know gets his um, yummy buns to to smash his <laughs> big three foot dick with mallets and it's it's made into this kind of grotesque object. So there is something very psychoanalytically interesting happening with this film. I you you are so prophetically right, and and <laughs> and for me, like one of the most powerful things of the point you bring up is the fact that all of the fallacies in this movie have to be destroyed or consumed in order to fulfill their function of of bringing forth narrative right the 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 phalluses in this movie aren't uh uh it it, it, like the 
uh, heteropatriarchy depicts a phallus that is eternal. It's, it's Wolverine's claws. It is an, an unbreakable erection that can penetrate anything and will never go down. The lure of the father, yeah. to put it in, in Lacanian terms. <laughs> but this movie, this movie defies that, right? You're absolutely right. Every single phallus we see is is degenerate. It is decaying. It, it is meant to be... Dick-caying. Dick-caying. <laughs> and I think, I think one of the things that that, unironically, I mean, this whole thing, my, my entire discourse is unironic, but one of the things that that brings to mind for me and that evokes... Uh, uh, there was a, a writer in the 90s by the name of John Stoltenberg who wrote this uh, a fantastic book called Refusing to Be a Man. Mm-hmm. Um, and John, John Stoltenberg wrote that book off of the heels of the idea of refusing to be white. So, mm-hmm. so white as a social construct, right? You know, there are German people, there are Italian people, there are British people, there are no white people. Whiteness is a social construct that is necessarily violent and only exists to oppress people who are not qualified as white. In in the same way, we can read maleness. We can read being a man, right? There are there are masculine things. There are things that are assigned to men that that people can do, right? There are signifiers. There are ways to perform and express. But this essence of being a man is constitutive of the oppression of women, right? Mm. Die you zombie bastards refuses to be a man. Die you zombie bastards every time it is handed, and these phalluses are increasingly powerful and increasingly large. The final phallus is literally the size of a man. And each one of them is expended and destroyed through the course of the movie. They, they have a functionality and a use that upon completion, they're gone. And yeah. there, there, there is this uh, kind of impulse within that to, to refuse and to reject and to critique the parts of masculinity that are constitutive of oppression. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you, what you're saying reminds me of the work of Noel Ignatieff, who who died just a couple of years ago. Who's a, a great American um, writer and pioneer of of um, uh, this critique of whiteness as a social and political construct. Um, he was the editor of the the journal Race Traitor, um, which was best known for its kind of um, saying or, or catchphrase, as it were, that treason to whiteness is loyalty to humanity, um, which is an amazing this f- uh, phenomenal. Point. Um, and this is just the same, right? This is this is treason to the discourse of the cinematic phallus. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, which, it, which is thus loyalty to cinema as art. And and to kind of to kind of ice this cake, uh, the actor that plays. Red Tool's father is Tim Gerstmar. It's the actor who plays Red Tool. He plays his own father. It is it is himself who is the father who hands him the phallus. This is this mm. is the deepest Lacanian Zizek flavored Freudian kind of analysis. It really is. It really is. This is this is barely barely subtext. This is, this, is, this is to quote to quote. Uh, so we 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 quoted uh, uh, Giles Deleuze earlier, but to quote a different Giles, uh, I believe the subtext here is becoming text. <laughs> um, yes, I I would agree, and I think it would be so. But at the same time, all of this is happening within the schlockiest horror comedy, and this is one of the reasons why I really love horror movies. Um. 
this this is a film that has that reminded me just why I really really love horror film, um, because it is. I could have I you could watch this and it would just be really silly and not very good, but deeply kind of cathartically enjoyable on a base level on a on an affective level. It would do all of the right things to your body with its enormous cinematic dick. Uh, but, but also if you if you think just for a moment you end up in this incredibly interesting and insightful area of of ideas um and whether that was consciously intended or not by the filmmakers is sort of beside the point yeah it's, it's immaterial it? to to our analysis here yeah a hundred percent um yeah, I, 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 I hope I hope you didn't mind my digression then on the the master signifier of the cinematic phallus. I I, I think that was it was eminently needed. I mean, like, there's no like, like I I want everyone who listens to this episode to watch this movie. Like, like go go spend your money on on this movie because it's not going to go to some like major studio. Like, this is this you can I think you can still buy it on the guy's website. Like yeah. that's where I bought my copy a million years ago. Was just off of the the creator's website. Uh, I found um, an HD remaster that someone, maybe the film guys, had put up on Vimeo. Beautiful. Yeah, I, I found out that there's a two disc edition, which now I absolutely have to get because I have the old one disc edition, and oh, it's like <laughs> just as as a personal favor to me. Everyone, just just go go watch this movie, because this movie is just like you will understand why we just had to spend thirty minutes talking about Dick. There's no <laughs> way around it with this film, and I think that that it it ties us into more things like this. This is this is one of those texts, and I've said this a couple times on the show, uh, and each time I say it, I mean it, and I mean it more than the previous time. But I really could do an entire podcast on this movie because there is this is so much the most going on that has ever gone on is happening inside of this film. So so let's I mean in yeah I totally agree. But in like what what does that mean that let's add that to the pile of spinoff shows that we should do. <laughs> so so we we would have Die You Zombie Bastards the podcast. We would have. Um, the 100 episode podcast talking about the murder of Pierre Pasolini. <laughs> uh, I, I totally forgot about our true crime spinoff. Our true crime, our true crime spinoff where we would try and work out who killed Pasolini. Uh, have we got any others? Um, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure there's more. Uh, well, uh, there is also, there is also the, the, the horny turtle film analysis. Oh, podcast. horny turtle film analysis. Yes. Which, uh, yeah, so, the, the first episode of that will be out. Uh, that is a podcast I am doing with um, Zoe from Season of the Bitch. Uh, we, we are ana uh, analyzing all of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle movies from, from uh, the most mind-melting perspectives possible. Please listen to it. Plug. And, of course, <laughs> and of course there is the spin-off show that, that um, I think we should do, uh, which is rom communism oh my god i have been waiting for rom communism forever <laughs> uh which would be communists talking about romantic comedies uh but we're gonna put we're gonna put the die you zombie bastards spin-off show on the on the pile on the on the tbd pile that's that's i i have to i have to write a book about this movie uh Ver, verso I, I, verso get in touch with me i know you're <laughs> i know i know you're listening 
we, yeah, we know, we know, we know who listens Repeater. to the show. Repeater, I know you're listening. <laughs> I want to write a book about a movie from 2005 that maybe 2005 people have seen. Call me. Um, I I will write the foreword. For <laughs> <laughs> Greater praise is never known, but um, I I think like so so your 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 discourse kind of leads into a little mini discourse that I've wanted to have a less, a less girthy, a less substantive discourse discourse. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, so, but, but hopefully, hopefully it won't be, it won't be uh, flaccid and lifeless. Hopefully it'll still have the kind of punch you need it to. And that's, I want to talk about the male gaze. Yes. I knew this was going to come up. This is, this is another one of those things where this film is just, it's just on its knees begging for this kind of discourse. And like, it is positively <laughs> tumescent with discourse. Um, but so, so in oh so, my god, what what are we doing with this show? The, the, this the, this episode this episode is X rated. <laughs> I'm, I'm really happy that we made the decision early on in the show to like because I know when we we recorded the first couple of episodes we were like, okay, are we going to be one of those podcasts that swears and talks about like adult themes or are we going to try and be like an all ages show and, and go that route and i'm really happy that we picked the the swearing and adult themes this this is horror vanguard getting horny on main let's talk about the male gaze yes so in, in cinematic terms the male gaze is often the perspective of a camera you know with the the camera is the i think um the best way to, to think about gaze is to think about the camera as an actor in every scene Right. Even even if there are no actors present, there's always one actor, and that's the camera, because the camera is looking around for us. It's how we view the world of the film. This is often through a perspective called the male gaze, right? The camera is viewing the world and the landscape of the film from a perspective that we could equate to a cisgendered, heterosexual, patriarchal man, right? Like the classic example of this is think of, think of uh, all of the fan service in quotes shots from, from almost every movie, right? The camera will, uh, uh, you know, kind of like do zoom into a new scene and it will just kind of like linger on like some woman bent over the hood of a car for no particular reason, or, or her shirt will be unbuttoned and she bends over revealing her cleavage to while she's taking an order at a diner or something. And for no yeah. real good reason in terms of the story or what's going on, um, like all, all of the shots of, I think, the, isn't the character's name Michaela from the first Transformers movie? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, all of the shots of Michaela from the first Transformers movie are like the best, if you want like just the best possible example, just look at her character. Like nothing in the movie is suggesting that she's some ditzy bimbo. Everything in the, in the text of the movie suggests that she's an incredibly competent and intelligent character, but the camera treats her like she's a pinup model. And I think uh, Dan Dan Olson, a foldable human on YouTube, made a really good video that talks about this. Um, but yeah, like that's that's male gaze in a nutshell. Da Yuzan, the, oh, the go on. classic the the classic um, uh, academic essay on this would be um, Laura Mulvey's landmark text, "Visual Ple- Pleasure in Narrative Cinema." Sorry, go on. <laughs> no, it's okay. that you're going to keep going. Um, uh, um, no, well, this is all I will, what I will do is, is is make sure that there is a link to a copy of the Mulvey essay in the show notes because I think, in terms of, in terms of a a psychoanalytic slash left wing way of looking at film criticism and feminist film criticism, it's a really really important text that I think everybody should read. 
there but go on oh my god there's so many when it comes to this film like we really need to talk about anal rope at some point as well but like so so the male gaze in this film is incredibly interesting because as we've t- discussed already this film is hyper focalized on dick various sizes states metaphors all kinds of dick are, are throughout this film and the male gaze is traditionally very uncomfortable with the male body and the male genitalia outside of the very specific context of heroic violence, right? So like Die Hard. Die Hard is, is my go-to example for this. Like we, we, we can see John McClane's body all we want, sweaty, bruised, you know, clothed, unclothed. Like we, we we can linger on his body as long as we need to, but he's always doing something brutal, right? He's crawling through vents over glass. He's finding weapons. He's killing men, you know. Like that's okay. That's okay in terms of the male gaze. But what's really difficult for the male gaze is like think think of all the movies where you've seen like gratuitous topless shots of women or gratuitous shots that linger on a woman's ass, and now try and think of like three movies that do the same thing for a man's body. Like, like, just think of a gratuitous shot that lingers on a man's ass in a movie. Like, that's incredibly rare because cinema is very uncomfortable with that. The male gaze doesn't want to become a homoerotic gaze. It's a it's heterosexual gaze. Die, you zombie bastards complicates the fuck out of that because the movie is just throwing dicks at you constantly. And when the movie decides to... Well, literally, literally. That is not a figure of speech yeah. you're talking. <laughs> but, like, when, when the movie... Uh, decides that it's time to linger on on the nude body of a woman it is making fun of you <laughs> when it's doing it so there are um three characters called the maldonado sisters they start off as um ichthyologists archaeologists yeah uh, something i think pa- paleoarchaeologists paleoarchaeologists there we go but they are they are on hell island and they which, are which surely would just be an archaeologist <laughs> <laughs> but they're they're on hell island looking for evidence of the mysterious amphibious guy the the creature mentioned earlier and and we 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 get like a couple of scenes with them where like, like the, the first one starts off this, like, reoccurring gag where whenever they're doing something, they, they, one of them goes, like, oh, it's too hot for research. And then another <laughs> one goes, oh, it's too hot for clothes. And then they strip down and, like, scamper randomly. <laughs> but it's, like, it, it's, it's always played off as, like, this almost, like, this weirdly comedic and annoying break because they'll be, like, delivering exposition and, you know, like, like they'll, they'll be talking about, like, Amphibious Guy or something important, you know, like some lore that's interesting to the text of the film. And then, like, just break with the nudity. And then we, we, we get the same thing later because uh, so Nefarious captures them and turns them all into to zombie slaves. And as, as Nefarious is explaining his plot to turn the entire world into zombies and to take over the planet, right? Like the classic villain monologue, right? Yep. The moment where he's unveiling his evil plan and, and the camera should be focused on him. You know, like like even even in the male gaziest movies, when the villain is unraveling his plan, we you know we see him gesticulating and like you know speaking from a place of power. But in this movie, the, the camera is just doing this really awkward shot, this back and forth over the Moldavo sisters' asses, and it just keeps going back and forth while Baron Nefarious is explaining his plan for just yep. no perceptible reason. <laughs> um. Yeah. I, but I wanna I wanna complicate this a little bit more. Do it. 
because I don't know, I don't know if this is a film that's absent of the male gaze, but what I think it is, is a film that's very honest about what the male gaze wants to be gazing at. Yes. So, like, the classic example here is is you talking about the male body and how there is a, f- a phobic uh, attraction and repulsion for the heterosexualized male gaze that can often kind of, like, it can't be a, it can't be a homoerotic one. You know, that's what everybody wants to avoid. But... In the context of video games, this is maybe easier to see, right? So when um, uh, Anita Sarkeesian was making her well-researched and fairly well-argued videos about um, the representation of women in video gaming, she would talk about the ways that these characters were depicted and clothed. And people would often go, oh yeah, well, the kind of like, the kind of like base right-winger response was, oh well, there are like male characters who don't wear a lot either. You know, there are there are unrealistic male bodies in, in video games. And the thing that they miss is, whilst that's true, is that that isn't a fantasy for anyone other than the male viewer. Yes, right? yes, absolutely. That's, so all of this, all of this, uh, all of these, all of these, uh, all of this phallus, all of this dick... Uh, is is not just a subversion of the male gaze or, or complication of it, but is actually uh, going, well, here's what you really want. <laughs> and if we go to the, the kind of, like the Zizek quote that I always, I always kind of bring up is that uh, desire is always mediated. We, we don't want what we say that we want. So the kind of, the, the professed desires of the male gaze is, Oh, we want the camera to be like we want the gratuitous nudity. We want the the camera to be doing yeah. a handshot <laughs> across the sisters. But really, what it wants is the fantasy of the phallus. Mm-hmm. It it wants the discourse. It just can't <laughs> admit it. Absolutely, and, this is, true, and yep. this is this is true of another film that we've talked about. This is this is uh, this is true of perhaps the most kind of masculinist film that we've talked about lately which is the lighthouse our episode with Connor. yeah yep definitely you know that is all about the repression of desire it's all about the inability of heteronormativity to deal with homoeroticism yeah in a way yeah that doesn't involve kind of violence and repression but this is a film that just gleefully revels in it, which is like, well, you want the dicks? We're going to give you the biggest ones you can deal with. <laughs> right. This is so, so like a lot of what, what the, the gaze in this film makes me think about is Eve Kosofsky Sedgwick's um, The Epistemology of the Closet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, we, like the, the gaze in this film is it's like sex. It's like sexuality. It's like gender. It's fluid. It's complicated and it's messy. Right, like this, this film is is simultaneously giving you what the traditional male gaze would theoretically want to give you, which is like young, attractive women being naked on a beach for no particular reason. At the same time, it's also giving you these gigantic and hideously mutilated cocks being beaten with hammers. <laughs> <laughs> like the, the the film, the film is the film is simultaneously saying like, okay, like this is it's it's absolutely doing what you're suggesting it's doing. It's negative desire. Right, like yeah. the the film, the film is saying like, oh well, this is this is what you say you want. You say you want attractive young women, 
but like uh, like but what is really? what is this film really <laughs> interested in this film is really interested in the the 40 foot gigantic phallus of a kraken <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> uh, I can, um, exactly um so it is it is a film that is particularly insightful when it comes to the this issue of the male gaze um and it has an interesting view on masculinity generally i think yeah um, i completely agree which is probably a good way of talking about red tool uh yeah yeah we, we should i mean like just his name right off the bat is another dick <laughs> yeah. uh it, it's a it, big red tool um, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I, th- I think his his masculinity is in a really interesting place in in the kind of broader context of this film and what this film is doing to masculinity, gender, and sex. Mm-hmm. And I think like so so he's simultaneously everything that your ultra masculine hero wants to be. He's he's everything a John McClane is, you know, like like he's he's visibly full of testosterone. He's muscly. He's strong. He's adventurous. Right, all of these traditional masculine heroic tropes. At the same time, he's also incredibly in touch with his emotions. He's deeply theatrical. He's deeply camp in the homoerotic sense, and and the film is aware of that. So, so Red Tool has, um, towards the climax of the film, the the the, the movie itself diegetically breaks down, and we see the the film real burn. You know, yeah. and then another film reel is inserted, and it's like a uh, like a Mexican soap opera style reboot of Dayu Zombie Bastards, which <laughs> which introduces us to Red Tool's sidekick that up until this point had never existed, called Boy Fantastico. Yep, and like this is this is very clearly a riff on the homoerotic relationship between Batman and Robin, right? Yep. It's it's his his like a uh, lithe young young male sidekick in a tight unitard. You know, it's it's the uneasy homoerotic nature of having a weird sidekick like that, um, who's trapped inside of a giant frosty treat in Hell Island. Yes, yep, yeah, that, y- is yes, also, that is also Yep. But um, when we get to Hell Island, right, we 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 get this scene where Baron Nefarious is like, "Oh, I've already captured your sidekick," and then we see Boy Fantasco trapped in the Tasty Freeze. You know, and then and then immediately cuts back to Red Tool and he's like, no, 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 I'm, I'm not with him. I don't know who the fuck that guy is. I'm not gay. And like up until this point, his his entire adventure has been him like holding giant dicks, being surrounded by giant dicks, you know, him being like camp and theatrical and like really transgressive of this masculinity. Like the, when he um enters the land of everlasting light, it's it's a land that that has no men in it. Right. And as, yep. as that trope in cinema and in literature goes, all of the women are are just, just preternaturally aroused by the presence of a singular man. Yep. Right. Super horny. Super horny for Red Tool. Right. And and the usual male gaze of a film would have him gloat in that, would have him surrender to it, would have him somehow champion it. But it makes him incredibly fucking uneasy. He's he's grossed out by it. It it makes him feel weird and uncomfortable because he is he's in a monogamish relationship right he's he is, he's committed he and ex- faithful and honest extremely he is extremely monogamous and like there's there's this complication of his masculinity right like we can't we can't just write him it would be really like like it would a lot of the dick scores in this film it would be really easy to say like oh red tool is just a like 
hyper-masculine superhero character. It's very stock. But that that, yeah. that would belie and negate all of the complications in this text. And, and to be quite yeah. frank about it, the complications are just far more interesting. 100%, yeah. Yeah, the, the complications are slathered to the hilt in peanut butter. I think I think I would say that. <laughs> um, yeah, and this idea that this idea of I I am I am very pleasantly surprised that we're plays, praising Die You Zombie Bastard for having uh, incredibly well-rounded masculine characterization, um, <laughs> while, whilst whilst at the same time uh, making a uh, a hero out of. Uh, a serial killer who likes eating people's heads um so it's a complicated it's a complicated and not unambiguous representation of positive masculinity well and i think that i think that's one of the things about this movie that makes it work so well is that it never wants you to be able to like despite the comedy despite the camp it never wants you to be able to rest easy in the text Right, like, like every every step you're taking through this text is it's hilarious, it's gross, it's splatter, it's horror, it's funny, but you're never able to to kind of slot into a very comfortable dialogue, mm. right? Like it, it it never wants to reduce itself, right? It wants to retain complexity through the text. So as you move through it, you can't just slot into okay, he's a hyper masculine hero and he's using masculine violence, and then like that's the you you ride those coasters through. The movie is it, it's knocking you around like a pinball, right? You're constantly bouncing from one perspective to another from these theoretical frameworks. Yeah, no, I think that's I think that's a very a really good way of putting it, actually. Um, and one of the fun things about it's deliberately. Uh, schlocky, deliberately lowbrow aesthetic is watching all of that play out in in kind of real time, as it were. Yeah, I mean, like he does, he does swim to the island of Sweden. You know, I think that's yeah, the, the only the uh, only uh, well, non real time shot we island, got. That well known <laughs> island of Sweden, uh, which which is that's definitely a thing. Um, <laughs> I mean, mo- movies movies can't lie. I think that's one thing that we know to be uniformly true. Oh yeah, completely. But um, <laughs> yeah, God. <laughs> um, yeah, there's so much more. There's so much more to talk about in this movie. Like, I think uh, we one day we might come back to this because we haven't even talked about like, like I've said. It just occurred to me that I've said analysis a bunch during this episode. And and oh, you you me. can't say analysis without saying anal, and that that is that is another reoccurring theme that travels through the text of this film. But I don't think we have time to get in on to get to get into it. <laughs> Unfortunately, I don't know if we do. Just um, just I before you. I don't know if I'm prepared. Before before I'm you prepared. watch this movie, read the essay "Anal Rope." It will really help you understand this film. <laughs> uh, yeah, but um. So we're running up to about an hour here, and I think there's probably no better way to leave the Die You Zombie Bastards discourse behind than to go out talking about high art and low art. Yes. Uh, this is something that you that you have kind of talked to me quite a lot about, and I know it's a big, big part of the way that you think about cultural studies more generally, is the 
not necessarily the lack of distinction, but the very the permeability of the distinction between high and low art. So why don't we start there? Yeah, yeah. So this is this is definitely this is a hobby horse that I will ride until it splinters and gives way. Like this is one of the things where like I always come back to to kind of thinking about cinema from this perspective, right? And I think I think your way of phrasing it is just absolutely perfect, right? Uh, high art and low art isn't a non-distinction, but it's an incredibly permeable one. The the distance between these two things is is completely constructed by by class and race and gender, it, it follows societal oppression like, like, like a taut line. And I think that this, this movie is a really good example of it. All the things that are happening in this movie, if they were made intentionally by like Steven Spielberg or like any, any other of the like well-respected and recognized filmmakers, it would be heralded as a brilliant subversion of cinema in a, in a twist oh, on yeah. our expectations. But because of the fact that this is made by like a, a, a bunch of relative nobodies uh, in terms of Hollywood in Providence, Rhode Island, just just making a, an incredibly fantastic movie, it it stays within this realm of low art. Yes, yeah, yeah. And I think your point that low art is actually a very politically salient category is really important. Yeah, yeah, I think I think it in a sense it has to be, right? In a sense the the limitations of low art, the things that we signify as as lowbrow and low class are often deeply coded as, you know, like it's in the name, low class. Like this is signified by class and your position in society, right? We recognize lowbrow cinema largely for nothing more than its low production value. Right, like, like that's the, that's the thing that that ticks the box for lowbrow cinema first and foremost is that it has a shoestring budget. Yeah, and it's only it's only hindsight and it's only retrospect and acceptance by an artistic community that changes this. Like, there's there's a Japanese horror movie called House um, it, that has a Criterion Collection release now, and now it's this cult classic that's been accepted uh, as as a mode modality of artistic expression. But when it came out, like it was, it was made by a guy who primarily made commercials and he tried a bunch of really extravagant stuff and it didn't stick and it didn't become popular for years. Like, like this is something that kind of retroactively becomes popular. And we see this with lowbrow culture a lot is that after a while, and especially after it becomes successful amongst a lowbrow audience, that a highbrow art will take it and lift it up and steal it. And that often involves a lot of whitewashing a lot of absorption into cultural norms like patriarchy and classes, classism and things like that. And I think this is why, this is one thing that makes this film really interesting, like the use of, um, like it's a very, just determinedly low aesthetic. It has literally no money to work with. Um, the, the, the fact that they just got Hassel Atkins in. Just in the middle of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> just Hassel Atkins is there playing it's just himself. hazing his way through a couple lines and then he's out uh, and he's also there at the beginning to explain what the film is mm-hmm. um, <laughs> but you know this is someone who is like a cult figure someone who is a genuine outsider artist um, someone whose art was directly influenced by his economic means right he said you know his sound was was produced by the fact that he didn't have a decent microphone yeah and he didn't have a decent studio why because that stuff costs money but 
his the, those limitations are what made his art so unique and so distinctive the same is true of the film itself right it is limited in so many ways because it has no money because that is an economic means to gain an artistic cultural capital so but it's those very it's those very economic limitations which shut it out from being high art that actually help it to create something that is distinctive and artistic and fully coherent as art itself i i think you're i think you're absolutely right and i think we can um to to digress from the movie for a brief moment we can see a really salient example of this in punk rock Right, like like punk rock is simultaneously a, a commercially viable and successful model that that is used to sell shampoo. Right, Operation Ivy is in a shampoo commercial. The the Ramones T-shirts you can buy a Ramones T-shirt. Like you just go to your local Walmart. I guarantee you, there's a Ramones logo on something there. Right, like it's it's an incredibly capitalistic genre, but at the same time, like there there is still an active outsider art element that's trying to resist that. Right, you've got like hardcore splitting into power violence right and at at the time where hardcore becomes this saleable genre that's commercially viable power violence rejects that and it becomes something that you can't sell yeah and and you've got the the, you know like hasla atkins another good example like he's one of the first psychobilly artists and and you know like like as as you were saying like his music stems from the fact that he grew up during the great depression in a tar paper shack Right, like he has no access, he has no cultural and financial capital with which to make his music travel. But now you've got psychobilly artists who are incredibly commercially viable, incredibly commercially successful, and that deteriorates the the outsider art status. That makes outsider art something consumable. Yeah, it makes it into a commodity. It's it's. It's the way in which capitalism seeks to absorb cultural forms which are antithetical to its values into its overall structure. Absolutely. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and I think this is a great example of the way in which, like you said, if this was done by, you know del toro then yeah. this would be like you know like peter jackson went on to do oscar-winning films but like that's how this is how he started mm-hmm. yeah well, and, yeah 100 like there's, there's no way that peter jackson could ever go back and do another bad taste yeah and bad taste is a great film arguably peter jackson's good work is his early movies and then he like sells out to the studio and starts doing these like major uh major budget franchise films (laughs) that is that's an amazing way of describing this film uh his uh the lord of the rings trilogy have have the last Uh, like three episodes just been me taking like a-list hollywood directors and being and just calling them (laughs) calling them out for being like absolute sellout chumps yeah basically basically i've done i've done nolan i've done peter jackson i mean like look out hollywood (laughs) (laughs) um so 20 years from now i'm I'm accepting some like uh absolutely falsified and churned up award for my role in like transformers avengers for the ultimate showdown and i'm like yeah this is a really important artistic thing i've done (laughs) yeah the the ultimate showdown of ultimate destiny um (laughs) (laughs) Phase twelve hundred of the, the MCU. 
Yeah, die you Marvel bastards. <laughs> <laughs> the tr- you know what the true zombie is? What? The Marvel Cinematic Universe. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Yep. There there's there's a movie without enough dicks. Um <laughs> Shall we? Shall we wrap things? Yeah, up? yeah. Do, do you have any up? parting thoughts as we as we exit the uh, the discourse chamber here at the Horror Vanguard Crypt? I I would say that I, like I said, like I said right at the beginning, there are certain pieces of media which, when you're introduced to them, you understand that person who who made the introduction just a little better, and. Uh, like with our episode on the Black Tower, I I I genuinely and sincerely hope that this episode encourages more people to seek this film out. It is uh, sp- spectacularly weird, um, in all the right ways, uh, and an awful lot of fun as well. I I couldn't agree more. Like this movie. You will find something to discuss when you watch this movie if it is nothing more than your own disgust. Yep, you will you will discuss. You will be disgust. There will be dick scores aplenty. <laughs> and there'll be a whole lot of zombie bastards that need to die. Absolutely true. Well, thank you for watching. Thank you for watching this movie. I'm happy to spread the uh the the spores of Dayu zombie bastards to as many brains as I possibly can. Yeah, it's worked. I'm I'm fully infected. I'm I'm, <laughs> one the, I'm one of the pod people now. <laughs> I'm 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 charging up my zombatron. I'm I'm like selling zombastachine out to, out the back of a truck. <laughs> like this is my life now. Um. Yeah, it's worked. I am fully on board. All right. Uh, well, uh, thank you. Thank you, everyone, for joining us for this phenomenal, fantastic episode. You know where to find us. We're on Twitter. We're, we have a Patreon. Links to everything will be everywhere you expect them to be. Um, and until next time, I don't even know what to say anymore. <laughs> Ha 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 